Hello there. I'm Kimberly Hayes de Muda. And I'm Amanda Day. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Season 2 of, of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We are a dynamic duo bringing you insight and knowledge into the ever-evolving world of grants, development, and fundraising. Full disclosure, we're Southern. Shocking. You may hear a y'all. It happens. Mm-hmm. This podcast is brought to you by Season 2 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Visit their website, www.dhleonardconsulting.com, to learn more. So today we are excited to have as our guest an author philanthropic leader, and champion of the good work done by nonprofits across the country. So a few months ago, I read the book Decolonizing Wealth by our guest, Edgar Villanueva, after Vule recommended it on his blog, Nonprofit AF, which stands for Nonprofit Absolutely Fabulous, I think. Sure. And it was and is the right book at the right time to not only address major inequities in the grant-making community, but to offer real and profound solutions. So I asked Amanda to give it a read, and we agreed that there was so much worth discussing here. So what better way than to invite the author to join our podcast? So today we have author, activist, and one of my philanthropic heroes, Edgar Villanueva, with us via Skype from an undisclosed garden location. <laughs> so you may, you may hear nature, you may hear other things, and it's just going to make that podcast come alive for you. So thank you so much, Edgar, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you guys. Um, well, Edgar, as a Southern woman, one of the first phrases that jumped out at me was your statement. Philanthropy, and see, I'm always going to mess up this it's word. It's okay, I'm here for Philanthropy, you. Philanthropy, honey, it's time for an intervention. Now, <laughs> based on the book, it sounds like you came to this realization while working at the R.J. Reynolds Foundation in Winston-Salem. How did all this begin? Oh, I have to jump in and okay. say uh, my Winston-Salem connection. I grew up there, left when I was about 15, and the R.J. Reynolds Family Foundation, tobacco industry, everything was huge there. And in fact, in the fourth grade, we even took a field trip to the factory to see how cigarettes were made, complete with a diorama and little tiny trucks filled with cigarettes circulating around <laughs> a display. So it had a huge and profound effect on the community. I am not a smoker, but I'm just saying, back in the day, they... I'm ruled the roost. And what did you learn in fourth grade about like, don't smoke, but here's a good job. Um, it was more like, look at this tremendous, uh, industry, industry in the community doing these things all over the world. <laughs> and there were planes and little tiny trucks stuffed with cigarettes. That's what I remember because I am deep and profound like that. Clearly. So, yeah. <laughs> so back to our question, Sorry. how did it begin for you, Edgar? I love it. So um, um, there's lots of irony in the story, but I actually went to school for public health and uh, was a uh, public health advocate working in a, a national nonprofit. When I graduated from the School of Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill, I was recruited to this foundation, and it's actually the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust. Mm -hmm. um, there are numerous foundations connected to the Reynolds family. If I remember my history, I believe that Kate was the wife of R.J. Reynolds. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, so the story is that she had her own money and then married into this family and, you know, the wealth increased there. And so, um, yeah, I personally struggle with the whole cigarette thing as well, coming from, <laughs> a, a you know, a public health background and then working uh, at a foundation that had 
its wealth from the tobacco industry. And this particular foundation was a health-focused foundation. So we were actually funding programs like smoking cessation programs, if you can wow. even imagine that from the money that, that blows been made my mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, lots of irony in there. And so I know that as you as you start into your book, Decolonizing Wealth, you were talking about sort of, if I'm getting this right, sort of, it was maybe a dream job in this very well-respected foundation with all mod cons and beautiful office and doing good in the community. But was it more of a, of a gradual thing for you finding out more about or recognizing more of the, the power imbalances? How did that, how did that start out for you? Yeah, it was, it was kind of more gradual. I would say yeah. that in the beginning, um, it's really funny because after graduating from uh, grad school and, you know, my dream job that I thought I wanted mm -hmm. at the time was to work at like the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic, one of these big healthcare sure. institutions. Sure. And so when I re was recruited to the foundation and I went to Ronalda Village, this small house that, you know, is formerly a plantation. And at the time, only, I think, eight people worked there, very small. So I was like, is this where I want to be? This is not what I had in mind. I want right. to move to the big city. <laughs> um, but once I got into the position, uh, at first, it was very glamorous in a lot of ways for someone like me who had come from a very poor family and community. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had a bank of cars that we drove for the foundation. I got a very nice salary. I remember, I think, in my first week or so, picking out uh, window treatments, like which fabric or design of window treatment I wanted. And you know, I had worked in a nonprofit where <laughs> the only way that you got something new is if someone quit their job and you ran to their office <laughs> before. Guilty. Guilty. Right, exactly. So it's like, well, oh, are you going to take this lamp with you? <laughs> you know. So I'm like, I've lived in my house 16 years and still don't have window treatments in my bedroom. And so I'm like, wow. I didn't no. even know what window treatments were. <laughs> we called them curtains. You know. Yes. So I was like, what is a window treatment? So yeah, in the beginning, things were um, really kind of cool, to be honest. And uh, I may have told the story in the book or somewhere else that. I remember where it really hit me that I had joined uh, something special and I now had some type of like power, institutional power mm -hmm. and a place at the table was really my first Christmas in Winston-Salem. Um, I received so many Christmas cards, like hundreds of Christmas cards from oh. people I didn't even know, um, including the governor of North Carolina. And it, not, not, and it was like a card that was like actually signed by the governor. And wow. I'm like, who, who am I? Like. <laughs> Mm. Um, but I, I was seen as this person who had access to the treasure box and as a person that people needed to build a relationship with in order to have access. And so, of course, uh, there, you know, a lot of that felt good when you um, haven't had power traditionally sure. or, you know, so, yeah. So it was, it was really kind of nice at first. So then you became maybe increasingly disturbed about the, the power imbalances as you move past window treatments. Another, <laughs> another really fun, no one is clocking you on your window treatments because it's nice to work in a, in a, in a beautiful office. It really is. But then as yeah. you sort of began to dig deeper, when could, or could you tell me a little bit about when and how you made sort of that interior connection to infuse indigenous beliefs that you talk about in your book to the idea of what kinds of reform need to be done? Yeah, so I would say after a little while in into my work in philanthropy, um, 
I definitely noticed that I was one of the few people of color in the room most of the time um, as I started going to like national conferences. I was also uh, very young uh, to be in my role. Um, I think the, the the next employee at Cape Fear Reynolds at that time may have been like late 40s. I was 28 years old, um, late 40s, early 50s. And at that time, that was kind of old, you know, now not so much, but. <laughs> Thank <laughs> so, you. <all> relative. <laughs> right. And so um, I definitely began to feel after some time as a person who was curious and really wanting to do uh, you know do my job and, and fulfill the mission of the organization? Um, I begin asking questions that uh, about you know why are all of our grantees white or why when we say that we are about moving money into the the poorest communities of North Carolina, we're only funding the large academic medical centers and large established nonprofits. And I will say that the leadership of the foundation at that time was very much in support of making those changes. And as we started, um, there was a, a new president who had hired me. And as we started making those changes, like the the, the good old boys network that kind of came out uh, against those changes, the you know the establishment, mm -hmm, the, the mm -hmm. hospital kind of associations, it was it was really interesting that they uh, you know wanted to kind of keep things as they were because people would write Kate B. Reynolds into their budget, like for like, they just knew they were getting that check for wow. years to come. <laughs> wow. And so um, I was doing a lot of work in Eastern North Carolina, which if you know, the state is the poorest, it the is. most, uh, more people of color, the sickest, the, you know, people used to say if you carved off Eastern North Carolina and made it its own place, it would definitely be like 51st and, and like all the, all the bad things. So yeah. Um, so that's where I began noticing, like, there was definitely uh, those, those desires to hold on to those resources and not make a change and move money to where uh, the communities needed the resources the most. And a lot of that was coded by language, right? It was, like, not blatant, like, racism, but, exactly. you know, those groups don't have the capacity exactly. or, you know, they don't have the track record, those kinds of things. Uh, they're not like, big well, enough. Or, yeah. They're not big enough. Uh, and I'm like, well, they never will be if we don't help, right? <laughs> it's true. Um, so there were those dynamics that I began to pick up on. And then I began to feel and uh, see just uh, sort of the microaggressions at first and my own type of oppression um, being who I was. And one of the pivotal moments for me where I realized that this may not be the sector for me is um, I was in a board meeting and um, very, you know, asking questions in a conversation um, with the board and uh, the leadership of that foundation kind of called me out and publicly embarrassed me and uh, said, uh, you know, Edgar, you're getting too big for your britches. <gasps> and oh. if you know, you're, you all be from the no, South. We're no, southern. no, we're yeah, that's southern. Not good. <laughs> we're two white southern ladies sitting here right. right now going, oh, those are fighting words right, right there. That is, right. That is, there's nothing nice about that. It's nothing nice about it. And, you know, and, it, and if folks, listeners are not from the South, it's kind of like one of those like bless your heart connotations oh, yes. where it it's means, uh, <laughs> you know, know all. your place, know your place. And, you know, you're, you're out of line. You are stepping above your pay grade. Exactly. And I, I just, uh, oh. you know, I wasn't in the boardroom being inappropriate or coming in with my fist in the sky, you know, power to the people. Right. I was simply having a conversation and asking questions to, to really try to understand or open our thinking to, um, perhaps a, a different way of understanding uh, the work. And 
So that was probably in, in my memory, one of the first times where I felt like pushed down and, um, and philanthropy became for me. And, and, you know, I've heard this from many, many folks, a place where, uh, you are made to feel you are lucky to have this job. And, oh, I was so reminded this past week, um, when I went down a awful Twitter hole reading, uh, the responses, uh, Trump's response to, uh, sort of the backlash on his comments about, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the new women in Congress. And, he said a remark uh, about one of them that she was lucky to be where she was. She was lucky to have that job. And that reminded me of uh, the feeling that I felt early in my career where I was told, you are lucky to be here. It's a privilege to work here. And in many ways, yes, it is. But um, really what's behind that statement is that you are replaceable. The moment that you push back on the status quo, the moment that you rock the boat, the moment that you don't assimilate to um, – really showing up in the way that aligns with this legacy and a white dominant way of leading in many ways, then you're, you're out the door. And so that's, um, you know, I I didn't, I didn't realize at the time I didn't tap into my indigenous background because honestly I had so assimilated to what I thought I had to do to survive in that, um, environment. So it was after I left the foundation that I began to explore, um, those values and, and, you know, seek a path of healing from the heart that I experienced in that first job. I, I'm so sorry that you experienced that. That must've just been a horrible moment for you. I, listening to what you were saying, I haven't, uh, being a grant seeker, it was more, you're lucky that we're funding you. I know later on we I'm hoping we can get into some more discussions about ways to make change. And I'm not saying I'm not saying in any way that my experience was like your own, but there was still that sort of setup with we are the funders. You are the grant seekers. We are going to tell you how it's done and you're going to be happy to receive what we give you. Yeah, absolutely. Just a little bit different take on that. Well, and that leads to, you know, there there is kind of the imbalance between the grant givers and the grant seekers. Um, But there are some fabulous foundations out there doing some great work Um, where you work. Edgar at the shot foundation is certainly one of them um, that is deeply committed to the collaborative process. Um, What other foundations are doing some great work that you know about to kind of bring about change and partnerships across this nonprofit sector? Yeah, absolutely. There are, I'm, I'm really hopeful um, at what I see happening across the sector where folks are really trying to uh, democratize uh, this work and, and really address power dynamics. Um, many of the funds that I love the most are, are groups that are in many ways sort of intermediary kind of funds. So they are very much um, connected to community um, and, um, you know, basically work with larger foundations and donors to move money to the ground. One of my yeah. favorites, uh, and that's kind of the model of SHOT. SHOT used to be a family foundation. These days we're public, and that publicness of the foundation creates more accountability. We have many donors that we have to be accountable to, so we can't, like, walk around like this is our money and we owe no, you know, explanation for how we do business. Um, but another fund is the Groundswell Fund, which is um, just amazing. And uh, they are moving money to grassroots organizations working to um, build power around reproductive rights and, and um, mm. sort of feminist type work for women of color and trans women. 
So they are a, remar a remarkable uh, uh, group that is like unapologetic about their uh, social justice approach to their work. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of sort of larger institutional foundations, one of them that I really appreciate is the Novo Foundation. And um, you may have noticed that Jennifer and Peter Buffett, the son of Warren Buffett, wrote the yes. forward to my book. Yes. So I've had a chance to really spend time with the trustees of that foundation as well as the staff and understand the type of work that they're funding in communities. And uh, they are a foundation that I would say gets it really right when it comes to listening and spending time in the community okay. to understand firsthand from women and girls, what are the issues that are impacting them and uh, and really responding with their grant making in a way that it, that, that shows that they actually listened <laughs> instead of creating in a bubble in a you know a vacuum, some type of grant making strategy that is really disconnected from what is needed in the community. You mean maybe like a theory of change grid that everyone has to follow, Edgar? Maybe? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and what a novel idea to actually talk to the people you're serving and make sure you are actually doing what they need versus just coming in as, you know, the savior who's going to fix it all because we know best. I have right. a I mean, the corporate in the corporate sector, they do this all the time, right? They listen to their consumers. They want to understand what products people want to buy and what they yep. need. Yep. And they adjust their business practices accordingly. However, in philanthropy, we are uh, just sort of so shut off and have limited proximity in many cases to the communities. And so there is that that dominant thinking that we know best because we happen to have money and power, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. Speaking of money and power, what I would love for you to um, help educate me on is you were talking about the, the foundations that function as intermediary foundations. And the, the only comparable thing that came to mind was maybe perhaps are they modeled on a community foundation kind of setup? Can you walk us through that a little more? It's, it's a newer concept for me, so I just want to make sure that we understand it. Sure. So, um, you know, there are different types of foundations, uh, private foundations, sure. which are independent and corporate foundation, mm -hmm. community community foundation, as you mentioned. An intermediary is, is similar to a community foundation, okay. but they may be just a, a public charity that is able to take you know large amounts of money from a larger foundation like Kellogg or the Ford Foundation and regrant um, in a way. So as shot, for example, I wouldn't say that we're a community foundation because uh, although we will take donations from pretty much anyone, mm -hmm. we don't set up all these individual types of funds that are donor driven. Okay. But we, uh, we have a very distinct, explicit mission around education justice, and we seek foundation partners and donors that are aligned with that particular mission. And um, then we, we regrant and often an intermediary will, um, we call it grant making plus sometimes. So not only do we have the capacity at the Shot Foundation to move, um, you know, smaller grants in a very rapid way that most large institutions cannot? We provide a package of technical assistance supports, so like communication supports and okay. policy supports that that really help um, these organizations um, with their advocacy efforts. It sounds kind of like to me, my background is more dealing with the, the federal funding side of things. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of federal grants that state agencies will apply for, and then they will turn around and subaward that out to the local organizations who wouldn't be as competitive on the national level. And so mm -hmm. it's, 
It's almost like you're, a, you're, almost like a you're getting money. Yeah, you're, you're getting money and then you're subawarding it out. So it's, it's, it sounds similar. We're just having a geeky yeah. grant moment yes. here. Thank you for indulging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, y'all, that wraps up the first half of our interview with Edgar Villanueva, winner of Best Background to Skype Recording Ever, <laughs> the bucolic splendor of Brooklyn. Who knew? I love it. Um, for me, it was great to hear from someone on the funding side who has some of the same ideas for change that us grant seekers do. I have to say that this is one of the most uh, affecting books that I have read nonfiction in the field to which I am devoted to earning my pay um, in years. It's not a how-to. It's a here's what happened and then it's a what if. And I just think it's an incredibly powerful story. It's a personal story told with some humor amid some a lot of sadness and a lot of um, sort of spotlights on inequities and what we can do. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Please go out and get a copy. I totally agree. If you've heard me on this podcast before, you know I love to read, but I'm more of a fiction reader. Um, but I must say that Edgar does such an incredible job of weaving his experiences throughout this message and just makes it a story that you don't want to put down. So not only is it something you're learning from, but it's you're engaged through the whole book. And you know I agree because I already said my opinion earlier. <laughs> but truly, if you enjoyed this episode and this interview, know that we are just getting our giddy up on. Uh -huh. Part two includes stories about over-eager grant seekers, because no one here has done that, <laughs> foundations that are working to change for the better, and ways we can all play our part in creating a just system of philanthropy and just living in general. True story. So it's fabulous stuff. Thank you again to our season two sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, www.dhleonardconsulting.com to learn more. So remember, there is no specific college degree in grant writing or fundraising, but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. We would love for this podcast to be one of your favorite ways to learn. Please remember to stay tuned for future episodes. Like Kimberly said, our next one is part two of our interview with Edgar, author of Decolonizing Wealth. If you would enjoyed the first half, trust me when I say that we haven't even gotten to the really good stuff yet. Mm -hmm. Until then, my friends. Bye. Bye.